by Passion Church, the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Well, won't you give him a big Passion Church welcome to Mr. Glenn Roseberry. Good to be here tonight. I don't know if you guys know this, but I've uh, attended church here for a while. I sit back there where that gentleman is right there. No, that's you. You're it. That's where I sat most of the time. And uh, I went to church here because I wanted to go to church with my brother, Van Roseberry. I had lived in Nashville for many years and uh, had not had the opportunity to uh, go to church with my little brother. And uh, just to had that opportunity, made this place special before I ever got here uh, because of getting to be with my brother. And so, uh, so I have great memories here and uh, a lot of familiar faces. I'm sorry I don't remember everybody's name. Apologize. That's really just a Glenn thing. <laughs> it's no reflection on you. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it's great to be here tonight. Before I start tonight, I'd like to open a prayer if you don't mind. Lord, we just come to you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we just pray that you'd lead us and guide us tonight. We pray, Lord God, that you would have your way, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I uh, grew up in, uh, uh, in South Haven, uh, lived um, all around this area uh, for a good part of my life. I got to work with um, Gary and Cindy and uh, uh, <laughs> uh, the entire Wilson entourage, dogs included, uh, got to work with those guys and had a good time with them as well. So we um, uh, got a lot of connections and everything here. And so I appreciate that. And I'm glad to see Guy here and enjoyed fellowshipping him this week. I thought I'd share with you a little bit about what I do and those kind of things just so you would uh, know a little bit about it before we got into anything else. Uh, I live in uh, Tanzania, Africa. And I uh, serve in uh, Tanzania and also uh, in um, Kenya, Nairobi, Kenya. I work with the uh, Wameru tribe, which is a, a, a relatively primitive tribe. We kind of dress like Westerners now, but one generation ago we didn't. We look like a, your stereotypical uh, African with, a, uh, with kind of a big uh, kanga-type cloth over it, and our guys carried spears and that kind of thing, just one, two generations ago. Uh, mostly we're subsistence farmers. Uh, Tanzania is one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, 90% of the population lives on a five to eight acre plot, and sometimes anywhere from eight to 20 people will live there. My particular Shamba, we uh, have about five acres, and uh, there's 27 of us that live on that little Shamba there. Uh, I work there doing outreach and uh, ministry to um, the alcohol brewers. They're kind of an unreached people group. We have a lot of issues... Um, the church is very different there than it is here. I'm sure there's many similarities as well, but for whatever reason, the churches in Tanzania, uh, as the society as a whole in Tanzania, won't have anything to do with anybody that's what you might call an outsider or perhaps uh, um, an undesirable. You know, we've all heard stories in India where you have this caste system, and they have certain people that are the untouchables you don't have anything to do with. 
Um, I actually uh, teach what we call Luke 10 evangelism where I take people and if Guy and I were going to go out and he was a brother that just came to the Lord and was with our fellowship, we'd literally go out together and I would show him how, like in Luke 10, we would go out two by two and we'd go from place to place searching for who God refers to, Jesus refers to in the verse as the person of peace, somebody that's welcoming to us and wants to hear what we have to say, perhaps would even share his home, his food with us and we would stay in that place and minister while we were there. So we go out and practice this Luke 10 evangelism. It's also mentioned in Mark, uh, actually twice in Luke and Matthew as well. So it's something Jesus kind of taught everywhere he went. Uh, and we teach that, and when we lead people to the Lord, what we try to do at this point is then to get their family involved, their neighbors involved, and actually plan a house church. Um, and so that's kind of a very oversimplified version of what our um, model is. Uh, so anyway, so I'm going with these gentlemen, and we're going down the road, and, and they kept taking me to these houses um, that where people were already Christians, uh, frankly, were pretty affluent for Africa. That means they had you know, maybe five or six cows and eight or ten goats and maybe a hundred chickens and multiple houses. Uh, typically, it's been an older person, more established kind of thing. And uh, I was just kind of curious why all their neighbors that we happened to stop at were all these... Um, very committed Christians in these churches and all, but I knew kind of something was up. And um, as we went along, I noticed we were skipping houses that, you know, they were a little further off the road, and um, I was a little curious about that, but we finally, uh, after we'd shared it four or five people and kept meeting these people, that were deacons and leaders in churches, I'm like, you know, what are we doing? Uh, so I go down this one road, and finally the two men stepped in front of me, and they said, no one else lives down this road. And I looked at him kind of funny, and I said, actually, I, I see four rooftops. Starting here on the right side of the road, two over here on the left. And I said, uh, why don't we go see them? No one else lives down this road. And these are my brothers in Christ, by the way. Recently met, but my brothers in Christ. Um, and uh, I said, I'm sorry, but when I got up this morning, I went on a jog on this whole loop. And there's actually a lady named Moses that lives in that house right there, and she's expecting us today, and I told her I was going to come, and I wanted to talk to her about Jesus, and she can't wait for me to come. And they said, no one lives down this road. So I said, yeah, they do, and I'm going to show you. And I pushed between the two brothers, and we went down there, and we began to share with these other people. And what it was is they were these alcohol brewers. They're despised. They live different. It's illegal to be an alcohol brewer there. Uh, most, you know, not most of the men, but some of the men, are, you know, they got the eye patch over it if they can afford a patch. If not, you know, they're missing an eye and have horrific scars and missing fingers and legs and all kinds of things because they get drunk and they get in panga fights, which is a machete. And, uh, and we pretty much uh, farm with a machete and a hoe. And so we, in this culture, when you get in a fight, you grab a machete or a hoe, you know, if you're going to, that's, that's kind of the preferred weapon among this crowd. So, you know, I tell people all the time, if you were to come with me and walk down the road and I walked up to one of these houses where all these guys are sitting around, you would think we'd walked into something like, um, uh, what's that Johnny Deep does those pirate movies? What are those things called? Ah, you think we walked into the set of Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, these guys are all, you know, got the patches on, or if they don't, you have this horrific scar and them. somehow the eye's still in there and it's and crazy stuff going on, and, uh, and, and that's kind of who we've targeted there, and I realized in a very short period of time that the church has never gone to these guys. Of course, they were stunned that we even showed up, 
So culturally, I found that even in the midst of an area that's highly churched, and uh, our little village is called Gongongari, and uh, we have about 5,000 people in our village, and there's actually four very nice large churches, and, but they all basically spend all their time trying to get each other's members and, uh, and going after the middle and upper class, and they kind of ignore everyone else. So it was kind of awesome for me because it was really easy because no one, you know, I didn't have to go 300 meters or even 200 meters, and here's all these people that have never been in a church, never heard about how to become a Christian, just kind of heard singing in the distance and heard preaching over loudspeakers, but no one had actually brought the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of what I do in Tanzania. When I cross the border and go into Kenya, I, uh, I work in the slums of Nairobi in a place called Mathari. When I first went there and was interested in trying to do some work in the slums, uh, everybody, um, when they would greet me, they'd say, oh, you're a missionary, you've come to Kenya? Yeah, you must be going to Kabera slums. I said, Kabera slums? I said, what? What's Kabera slums? They said, well, until just a couple years ago, it was the largest slum in the world. And so you must be coming to Kabera. And I said, well, why am I coming to Kabera? And he says, oh, that's where all the missionaries go. I said, really? He said, all the NGOs and all the charitable organizations, everybody goes to Kabera. That's where everybody goes because that is the world's biggest slum. And I said, hmm, how many people's in there? And they said, a million people in like five square miles. And I says, well, since everybody's already there, where's the next biggest slum? And they said, oh, that's Mathari. Nobody goes there. And I said, I'm going to Mathari. And so I went, and it turns out there was one little German clinic and one little NGO working there, but nobody else does everything. And so I began to go in there, and as I went in um, uh, and began to work there, uh, I just fell in love with the place. I absolutely love the slums. I work there all the time. And uh, God's blessed us with great fruitfulness there. Slums are made up of about 70% women and orphans. Uh, usually in Africa, when a, uh, when a man dies, the women are actually, we, I'm going to say we a lot. Y'all have to just understand that's where I live, and they're my people now. Uh, I was, actually was adopted by the Wameru tribe, as a matter of fact, but that's a different story. Uh, but in, in our culture that I live in over there, when you want to get married, I don't care how Western you may be, I don't care if you went to college, and I don't care if you, you know, uh, are a corporate banker, your husband still has to buy your wife. And now in the villages, it's still very much very important. It's an economic thing that's highly valued. In the cities, even if you're very educated and you're above all that kind of thing, you still have to respect the customs. So you have to go negotiate with the parents and, um, and so many cattle, so many goats, and this kind of thing. So what happens is, is that the husband buys a wife and he moves them onto their little family farm. It's called a shamba. And it's an ancestral farm that the whole family owns. There'll be one guy named, usually called Babu, which means grandfather, and he's the patriarch. He makes all the decisions if they get escalated to a point. I mean, he doesn't meddle in everybody's business, but if there's a conflict, Babu takes care of things. And so anyway, I, um, um, I, I, I went to, I don't want to lose my, lose my train of thought here. But anyway, so uh, when I went up there, um, uh, I discovered that the slums are all full of people because when a husband dies, the person that owned her now is gone. He owned the house and a little piece of that shamba. And when he dies, there's now, it all goes to the brothers. Uh, she owns nothing. And if they're good graces, you know, if they're a good and godly family, if they're Christians on the land, they would let her stay. Um, they, um, and, and good people in general that, that may have loved her. And if she brought value to the shamba, 
they would you know, want her to stay and if they love the children and this kind of thing. However, the reason slums are 70% women in, uh, in orphans is because a whole lot of folks don't feel that way. And so they basically, they give her enough money so they'll, they can get her out and they send her to a big city because everybody goes to the big city to get rich anyway. So we're going to send you off to the big city. And of course, everyone knows she has no skills. We typically have between six and 14 kids. I've met one woman that had 27. Uh, and uh, by the way, she was the most blessed and godly lady that I've met in quite some time. Uh, but anyway, um, so they wind up uh, going and there's nowhere to live. The slums are actually an illegal community, usually in the lowest parts of the city where everything kind of washes down, where no one wants to live. Usually it's mosquito, malaria ridden area. Nobody wants. So poor people move there. You know, they lean, lean shanties and things like that up and they they move in. This slum's been there for a whole generation now. And so this place is full of them. And then most of the men that are there are outlaws. You don't go to the slums because you want to be there. So these guys have probably committed a crime out in the villages. And uh, I shouldn't, it's, it's a little bit of a generalization, but the majority of those guys have gotten in trouble in their village and then had to move there. And it's a great place to hide. Mathari is uh, two square miles, actually a little less than that, about a mile and a half square. We have 600,000 people, and there's no two-story buildings. So, uh, you know, a room could typically have 15 to 18 people that you probably put your, not quite your smallest child, maybe a 12 by 15 room. Uh, and then uh, there's no toilets, and we have uh, four public ones they finally put in a few years ago that they all share. We do have what we call flying toilets, which are, which are very popular. Um, a flying toilet, when you don't have a toilet, is uh, you have to avail yourself to a plastic bag. And then you just tie it, and when you go outside, you throw it on your neighbor's roofs. And that's called a flying toilet. We pass laws to try and stop them, but I can assure you we have a unique litter problem. Uh, but that's kind of the situation there in Mathari. But I love it there. God is doing a great work. We have uh, planted many, many house churches there. We have hundreds of uh, people there and hundreds of fellowship, uh, not hundreds of fellowship, hundreds of members that are in that slum. And then uh, when I was there doing that, I then soon began coming engaged also in the predominantly Muslim community. What's funny about the whole Muslim thing is, is when I was getting ready to go to Africa, I, uh, at the church that sent me, ICC in downtown Memphis, they, um, <laughs> they, had, they were training all these people to go to Islamic nations. They had one girl going to Pakistan. They had another one going to, um, where was she going to? She was thinking about going to Egypt. Anyway, there was three or four of them. They were doctors, and they were training, and they were learning, you know, Arabic and Urdu and all these different languages and all. And they said, uh, and so one day I met them for lunch, and they were going all this stuff. I said, what are y'all doing? I said, oh, we're going to, you know, these girls are going to these Muslim countries. You're welcome to come to these classes too. I said, what do I need that for? I don't want to go to these classes. It'd be a waste of my time. So I get over there, and I had something happen that was kind of life-changing, and that's what I want to kind of lead to what I want to talk about tonight. I was in a room and uh, with some missionaries. I'm required to go to this one missionary meeting by this missionary guy that helped me get my visa. And when I'm in this room and where I kind of broke up from the meeting, um, uh, we had a guy, two guys sitting there, and I'm just overhearing the conversation. And there's a white guy from the U.K. named Joe. Joe's about this tall. Uh, he's a unique individual. He has literally taken the gospel into Afghanistan. Uh, he took the gospel into Sudan during the war. Uh, and he's actually been in uh, Mogadishu uh, and taken doctors in to treat the kidnapped uh, 
people by the pirates as well as the pirates themselves. Uh, he's a brave young guy, as you might imagine. Uh, he is fearless for the Lord, and Joe's sitting there next to a gentleman I'd never met. I later learned uh, we, his name was Imam Hussein. By the way, Imam is not only a title of a religious leader, but when they know you're going to become an Imam, they just formally your name becomes Imam. Plus, most first males, when they are a very religious family, will name a child Imam, hoping that later he'll become one. Hussein was the name of um, one of the uh, either nephew or grandson of Muhammad himself. He was murdered, so everybody names their child Imam Hussein, and then they have a bunch of other names depending on uh, what the parents might also call them. So Imam Hussein and Joe are sitting there, and they're having this conversation, and, and um, Imam is kind of pleading, and Joe goes, I can't do any more than what I'm doing. And, uh, of course, you know, I'm like a fly on the wall. I hadn't been in the country but about a month, and I'm trying to get over there and kind of listen. What are these two guys talking about? And what I learned as I listened is, is that um, Imam um, uh, was an imam. Um, he uh, was an Egyptian imam. He was actually a terrorist. He had uh, murdered Christians in the Sudan. He had uh, attempted a suicide bombing on the Israeli border, and the bomb didn't go off. He was severely beaten by his uh, handlers for not successfully blowing himself up and everyone in his car. He got pretty disillusioned with Islam there for a minute. Uh, it's no fun getting beaten up trying to um, go to heaven for them. So, unique experience. Uh, I was to learn these things later, though. Uh, he was poisoned by his mom and dad twice when they claimed that they wanted to reconcile with him. Uh, he was beaten, macheted, and shot at several times. So, he'd had a rather interesting life. He also spoke 11 languages. There, one thing I've learned in being over there, there are no dumb imams. Uh, you know, basically, uh, you kind of get chosen to become an imam when you master Arabic at about six years old. Then they go, okay, you know, you guys start mastering all these languages at that young age. They begin to groom him because you realize this is one smart cookie. And uh, you, so you, you, you're always dealing with a very intelligent person whenever you're dealing with an imam, in my personal experience. So I began to, um, uh, as I listened in, I learned that what happened was the Imam had become a powerful evangelist in a Muslim community called Isli, where all the refugees came in. Um, Kenya is just south of places like Somalia and the Sudan and, and Ethiopia and all these places. So whenever there's a war or persecution or anything, you know, refugees will flood over the border. And they keep them in these border camps. The one nearest us is called Garissa. And so they keep them in Garissa, and uh, if they can prove that they were truly religiously persecuted or if they, if they know for a fact there's a war going on, so this isn't somebody just trying to sneak into Kenya, you know. If they can kind of prove that, they let them stay. And then if they can prove they got friends or family or somebody that will help them and support them all the way in Nairobi, they let them move into this, village, this area called Isli, which is where the refugees come to. Loaded with Somalis and Ethiopians predominantly, a few Sudanese. So anyway, to make a long story short, uh, Imam uh, had led many, 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 many people to the Lord in Isli, and uh, people had learned um, that Imam would do everything he could to help people when they came to Christ, because in Isli, typically when you come to the Lord, your family puts you out on the street. If you happen to be a woman and come to the Lord without her husband, which is not the most common of things to happen, uh, but if you do, the first thing your husband will do is, let's say you got eight children. And he'll take all the oldest kids that might help you and put all the babies in your lap like this gentleman sitting back here and surround you with toddlers and then kick you all out on the street and, uh, and abandon you. 
and they do that um, with the hopes then that life will be so bad for you and you'll become so desperate that you'll come back to Islam. Um, and so Imam would find these people and try to figure out how to help them. And this guy Joe I was telling you about had agreed that on occasion, on certain circumstances, uh, he would pay their rent for four months and provide them some money so they'd have food and give them a chance to get on their feet. Well, once people heard that Imam had access to do these kind of things, then everybody uh, that come across anybody would call Imam. I found another one. I found a lady living under the bridge. I found a young man that's been kicked out of his home and beaten. And so he began to gather them up. Well, he was gathering them up, and they had needs faster than Joe could take care of them. So needless to say, he did this for four months. When the four months was up, Joe had to stop helping that one. And um, because, you know, mom was still bringing him new ones that were getting kicked out. And so it was one of those terrible, hard decisions that people have to make. And so they were having a discussion about another imam that was literally in hiding in Eastley. His four months were up. Well, he couldn't go get a job because people knew him, and if, if they figured out where he was at, they would kill him. And so he didn't know what to do. So Joe, you know, Joe makes, has to make tough decisions all the time, and some of his decisions he made are life and death, and that's the way it is. And he said, no, I've done the four months. You guys got to trust the Lord. That's all I can do. And it was the end of the meeting, and when he got up and he walked away, well, I walked over and sat down. And um, asked him to tell me about this guy, and he did. And uh, I told him, I said, uh, I don't know how we'll do it, but we'll find a way. And uh, kind of one of the things I do is I, uh, uh, I write stories um, and post them online, Facebook, and different things, and give other people an opportunity to help guys like this other imam which coincidentally is also named Imam Hussein. Uh, by the way, I have not met an imam that wasn't Imam Hussein something so far from Ethiopia. If you ever run into a imam, just say, hello, Hussein, and <clears throat> he's from Ethiopia. He'll say, oh, how do I know you? you know. I'm like, do you guys not notice you all have the same name? But anyway, uh, so anyway, uh, I seem to be the only guy over there who was noticing this, but I pretended like I didn't notice, so, you know. Uh, one of life's a little curious observations. But I, uh, I began to get involved with the first imam. Let's call him Imam 1 and Imam 2. Imam 1, and uh, I began to talk to him and um, got very involved in his life and then began teaching him about making disciples. Uh, one thing that we do that's very, very different from traditional Christianity is, you know, in traditional Christianity, both Western and African Christianity, typically we've been taught we got to get everybody saved. We want to get everybody safe so they can go to heaven. That's a worthy task. I think that's a good thing. Uh, Jesus came to save the lost and save souls. That's, that's all a wonderful thing. But in Jesus' ministry, he called people to become disciples. His call to discipleship is very different than the typical call to get saved. You know, we jokingly have something in America we call, you've got to have the altar call. You, know, you bring people to the altar so they can ask Jesus to forgive them and become a Christian. Well, we had to say that Jesus had a different altar call, and the word altar meant something quite different. Jesus said one time when he's walking down the road, he turns around and he sees a multitude. And uh, he sees this multitude, and he says the strangest thing. Now, 
Uh, I don't know if any of you guys have ever read David Platt's book, Radical, but David Platt tells this story, and I'm just going to retell it the way he does because I love the way he tells it. But he says, you know, and the way David Platt was brought up as a good Southern Baptist that wants to get everybody to pray the sinner's prayer and become born again, he said, man, if we turn around and see a big people following us, man, we're ready. Let's get a pulpit, let's stand up, and we're going to preach at these people, and we're going to tell them how to get saved and pray this prayer out to me, and everybody raise your hand and sign the card. See you on Sunday. He says, but what does Jesus do? And Jesus turned around and he said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must hate his mother and his father and his sister and his brother and his children, yes, even his own life, and give up everything, take up his cross, and come and follow me. Later he says he must renounce all that he has to come and follow me. So we do something really crazy. We do it like Jesus did. So we call people to surrender everything and to come and follow Jesus. So uh, we began to go into the community. I, by the way, I find that a particularly salient way to share the gospel when you're speaking to people that are Muslim because it very well will cost them every th single thing they have to become a Christian. It's To tell them anything else would be a terrible lie because... I don't want to imply there's no cost for them, because there is. I have house churches full of young men that were kicked out of their homes and beaten, uh, and young ladies as well. Uh, they pay a high price. We've lost three people in four years uh, to radicals. Uh, we've got guys that no longer have a left ear, uh, a lot of broken bones, broken noses, and guys beat up going in and out of our house church meetings from time to time. I tell them not to carry a big Bible. But somebody gave a young man named Jamal. I mean, guy, it was like a family Bible, like one of these, you know, it's got the big picture of Jesus, and you do your family tree inside it. it was, you know, sometimes you wonder what people are thinking. But anyway, somebody gave this guy this Bible. He had never had a Bible. And uh, so he had this Bible. And, and, you know, when we meet in house churches in the Eastley area, you know, there's kind of secret. We kind of whisper when we say. Jesus is Lord, Lord. It's a whisper kind of thing. Because, you know, next door is a bunch of Somalis with the flag on the wall and the whole nine yards. So, you know, you kind of keep things quiet. And, uh, and most of our sharing is a one-on-one -on -one type thing. We don't do a lot of preaching on the street corner type stuff. I've known a couple guys that have done that once, but, you know, it's not something that's repeated very often. But so uh, we were going through there, and um, anyway, somebody gave this young man this Bible. Of course, he's so proud he's got a Bible. Now, in the house churches, we're going to always have a Bible waiting in the meeting room. So, and everybody can share the Bible. Sometimes we'll even have two or three Bibles there. And most of our guys uh, have a little cell phone, and they've got a Bible download on it, too. You know, nobody's got their password. So no one knows they're going around with their Bible all the time. So here he goes, you know, family Bible under the arm. And, of course, what happened was he walked by three mosques on the way there, and he goes up, and they have a great meeting. And, of course, the bad guys are waiting on him when he comes outside because after they saw him, they got a group together, and they're all standing around just can't wait for this guy to come outside because they knew for a fact he used to be a Muslim. They're pretty tolerant of Christians from their own country in Ethiopia. What they're not tolerant of is that people to come to know the Lord. They view it not as changing religions. They view it not as changing their belief system. They betrayed their country. They betrayed their tribe. They betrayed their parents. That means they hate their country. They hate their tribe. They hate their parents. They hate Allah, and they hate their fellow man other than Christians. It's a horrible misconception. We spent a lot of time trying to explain that's not the case. It takes a lot of explaining. 
He comes outside, and of course, he, um, he's severely beaten, broken nose, arm, ribs, the whole nine yards. And, uh, and he comes, and I see him like a week later. Oh, I got to talk to you. You know, he's been to the doctor, and, you know, so he comes and talks to me, and his nose is broke, and, you know, this kind of stuff. And he comes to me, and I guess he expected tons and tons of sympathy, and I go, Jamal. How many times did we tell you not to carry the Bible around, you know? And he's like, but my arm. And I said, you could have got everybody hurt. We're actually lucky. He walked out with five ladies. Could have really gotten bad. But it was just him. They, the ladies were smarter than him. They scattered. Of course, even our ladies that come from Islam still wear a full burqa. So uh, you can pretty much, they can disappear pretty quick uh, into a crowd and everything. It works out great for our ladies. Uh, we, we're, we're big fans of the burqa. We love it because nobody knows who our ladies are. So uh, we don't look at it as oppression at all. We look at it as a necessary camouflage for us. So, uh, in fact, if you were to come over, I would insist that if you went with me, you would have your head covered for your own safety and also so, so that we could move and do the things that we need to do. Uh, in fact, the reason I have a beard, those of you that may remember me from being here before, I was bald as a cube on, cleanly shaven, and I did that because I was getting gray-headed, and I looked younger. It's important to me to look younger. When I got in, um, began working among Muslims, no one knew I was a Christian. In fact, the word on the street was I worked for Red Cross and I was a doctor. And so I was given, you know, a little cred, you know, for being there helping people. I don't know where they get these ideas, you know, they got to come up with something. And, um, you know, I'm walking down the street one day and somebody just cold cocks me. It wasn't religious persecution. It's because you're a white Westerner in the middle of this area and you don't belong here. And so, you know, I'm like, whoa. And so uh, I got to talking to a couple of guys, and I said, what was that all about? You know, I said, was he a mugger, or did he find out I'm a Christian? What did he do? And he's like, no, dude, he just don't like you. He said, oh, a, 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 a guy that looks like you walking around our neighborhood would be like a guy wearing a dress. For a man not to have hair on his head and hair on his chin, and a guy without a beard is like a woman walking, a guy walking around dressed in drag over there. And so, not in everyone, but you know what I'm saying, in several of the cultures, and I was in a Somali area, and they're pretty radical sometimes. So I found myself, uh, I decided to grow a beard, and I'm letting it go. Now I've gone from getting whacked in the head to they literally opened the door for me. Because uh, I've got two things, it turns out, you know, over here I wanted to not have gray hair, and I, so I had to kind of hide it by shaving everything. Over there having a long beard and gray, man, it's, um, it's like I've got a carte blanche to get in everywhere, you know, everywhere I go. People jump up and go open the door for me. Shalom alakum, alakum shalom. You know, I just go about my way. Everybody assumes I, there's a high likelihood that I'm, well, they're certain I'm eminently wise because you can't live this long. You know, life expectancy over there is 52. So I'm 60 years old in a couple of days. So and with the gray hair, they, they don't know how old I am. They can't tell how old we are anyway. Uh, and so... Uh, between the gray hair and the long beard, I might also be an imam. So, like, they can't risk, you know, offending me. So, everybody treats me absolutely wonderfully. And uh, so, it works out good for me. So, I may come back and see you in a couple years and maybe down to here, Lord willing. So, uh, people ask me, oh, you're home now. You're going to shave that nasty beard off? Not on your life. Not on your life. I'm going back. Uh, but anyway, I just wanted to tell you these things kind of to give you a reference as kind of what we do. Uh, our model is a little bit unique, too. We go poor. We live poor among the poor. I have a little clay and brick house in, um, in Wameru, and I live right outside the slums in Nairobi. I also work up around uh, Lake Victoria. I work with eight 
Islamic people groups and um, seven different uh, tribes. And uh, we have uh, five safe houses now. And uh, we found that, uh, uh, you know, my friend Joe was trying to, like, he would pay this young lady's rent here for four months for her to live somewhere to help her start. Well, by having a safe house, I can move this young lady in and this young lady in and this young lady in. I mean, Africans, 15 in a room is no big deal. You just keep throwing mattresses on the floor, and it's all good. So by having five safe houses, I mean, I can take care of 15, 20 people in a safe house if I had to, an emergency, but can typically have somebody living in one all the time. So we have numerous safe houses there and in various places there uh, among these people groups. But uh, that basically gives you an idea of kind of what we do as far as the people and everything go. Uh, the one message, and I, I realize you guys... I got 15 more minutes before we hit, hit the gong here. So the one message I wanted to kind of share with you guys, this was, needless to say, big cultural shock for Glenn. Um, when I went in and heard that conversation with Imam and Joe that day and then begot, got involved with Imam himself uh, and, and, and began to see the plight of what was going on, God began to change my heart uh, towards people from Islam. Uh, you know, I grew up uh, here in the South with you guys, and I watched the news like everybody else. And um, uh, I realized that we're presented with a side of Islam that, um, that would cause us in the natural to be very offended by the religion, by the things they do, the radicals among them, and all the various problems that we would have uh, with what's going on in the whole world right now. It's a very natural way to respond. However, it's not the kingdom way to respond. Uh, it's fine for the cultures and kingdoms of the world to respond that way, but that's not who we are. We're citizens of a different kingdom, and we're citizens of a different place. I got in trouble one time. One of, the, um, uh, one of my friends on Facebook uh, posted this great quote, he thought, by this, one of these guys from Duck Dynasty. I, I, I've never seen the show. I, I, I hear it a little bit longer, and I could maybe get on the set. But uh, uh, evidently, it's some, some good Christian guys, and they got a show, and that's about all I know about them. Well, in this particular thing, this uh, patriarch of their family had, uh, had made a quote, and the, basically the quote went like this, and I've heard other Christians say this before, they, we need to either convert them to Christianity or we need to shoot them. Ann Coulter, the political commentary, who claims to be a Christian as well, uh, has made the same comment, and I've heard several other Christians say it. Uh, I've heard other Christians say that we need to either convert them or nuke them. And um, I, I happened to respond to that quote with a guy as I says, well, you know, that sounds more like ISIS than Jesus. That's exactly what ISIS says. Oh, well, if they're not going to convert them, we might as well kill them. I said, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know anything about Duck Dynasty, but he don't sound like Jesus. He sure sounds like ISIS. Man, did I get in trouble. I lost about 50 friends and um, had people calling me all kinds of names from everywhere. The thing I've come to understand is, is God is moving among the Islamic nations in an unprecedented way. I got a friend of mine that uh, his son works for an intelligence agency I cannot mention. He said, you know what the number one chatter is on the Internet and telephone and behind the scenes in Iran? It's not the embargo. It's not the billion dollars that we just uh, that the administration just gave them. It's not hostages. It's not uh, uh, bombing Israel. And it's not their nuclear plan. The number one chatter behind the scenes among government employees and among government officials is, "What are we going to do 
about all these people becoming Christians. They view it as the number one problem in Iran. Maya Mama I told you about when it got started was an absolute stone-cold terrorist. He's beating a Christian one day for fun. And he's beating this guy, and he's an old guy, and he's just pounding this guy. And the guy looks at him, and he says, I love you, and I forgive you in Jesus' name. And God sent his son to die for you, and I still love you. No matter what you do to me, you can't stop me from loving you. He said, I continued to beat him. But when I, ran, when I left, I ran to my mom. And I told him what he said. So this guy that was an imam runs to a higher imam, probably a Sikh. And he runs to a Sikh and he said, this guy, the whole time I'm beating him up. And he tells me he loves me. He tells me that God loves him. And he told me there was nothing I could do to him to stop him or God from loving him. And he said, why would he do that? And the Sheikh says, oh, it's just a trick of the devil. And my mom says, why would the devil want me to know this man loves me? What trick is the devil playing to try and convince me that God would send his own son to die for me? Tell me what possible gain the devil could get for that. And then that imam said, oh, well, he's very tricky. Imam didn't become a Christian immediately. It was years later, but he couldn't get it out of his head and he couldn't get it out of his heart. The other imam I came to, remember the one we were trying to get the safe house for and keep him in there, God came to him in a dream. By the way, he was such a good apologist, he was such a good preacher for Islam, he had led 32 Christians from Christianity to Islam. Now he, does, he teaches Christian apologetics to Muslims, but at that time he did the opposite. He loved to debate Christians. He had memorized the Quran. Now that he's been a Christian for six years, he's memorized the Bible. What did I do the last six years? I didn't memorize the Bible, but he has. I go to his classes once a week on Thursday night, and the only time he opens the Bible is to make sure that Isaiah 57, verse he's given me, 43 through 47, is not actually 43 through 48. He didn't want to give me the wrong verse. It's not the verse whether it's right or wrong. He wants to make sure the numbers are right or wrong. This is the level of commitment this guy has to the Lord. So he sits there and quotes the Quran quotes the Bible, goes to the Quran, goes to the Bible, goes to the Quran, goes to the Bible, and he never opens either one. And, of course, I'm fact-checking him as fast as I can because I like doing this. It's like a magic show. This is like tricks. This is like, how does he doing this, you know, kind of thing. But that's the level of commitment this guy has. It's just amazing. But this guy, he's in bed asleep, and, 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 and Jesus just appears to him. You've probably heard of this where God is revealing himself to dreams and visions. And showing himself to Muslims. And this guy shows up and he says, I am Lord, come and follow me. And he says, who are you? And he says, my name is Jesus, come and follow me. And he says, but I follow Allah. And he said, you're following no one. You need to come and follow me. Well, he wakes up yelling. And his wife's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? He says, it's just a bad dream. I go back to sleep. He has a dream again and again and again. So finally he gets up. And he goes to the guy that's my first imam I told you about, who he knew he'd become a Christian in the meanwhile. By the way, second imam had beat up first imam. Same guy that was later trying to find him a place to live after he became a Christian. 
And he runs up to him and he says, I've had this dream. Somebody came to my dream, said his name was Jesus to come and follow me. And he says, tell me about this dream. And he's like, I think that was Jesus and he was telling me to come and follow him. And he goes, ah, it's just a dream. So he runs away. Uh, has a dream again, has a dream again. So finally he comes back, and I don't know why, but um, he says, ask him about the dream again, and my mom says to him, I guess he just had a word of knowledge. And he looked at him, and he said, that was your last dream. That was your last chance. He's never going to come back to you and say that to you again. So you can either surrender to him now, Oh, you're finished. This is your last chance. And that guy took off, and he went home, and he got home. He turned around, and he came right back, and he says, how do I become a Christian? And that guy took him to someone else, and they shared with him, and and he became a Christian. Uh, Turns out that uh, Jesus may not have come back to tell him he was Lord again, but he did come back again. Uh, That imam also continued to teach in the madras and continued to teach in the mosque. He's a Christian now. That would sound like a terrible contradiction to you. But he didn't know what to do. I mean, basically, he'd just become a Christian. He's a paid imam. I mean, how do you resign? You know, he doesn't know. He's never seen anybody do it. And so uh, he goes back, and he goes on for like a week. And, of course, he's in secret studying the Bible and reading and sneaking off to prayer meetings and everything. Jesus shows back up. And he says, uh, don't ever... Go back and share in the mosque again. Don't ever go back to Madras and share again. And if you do, in order to preserve you, I'm going to take you because you're mine now. And so he basically gets up the next day, calls a meeting of all the, um, the imams, like a big group of them. He tells them about the dream. He says, guys, Jesus keeps coming to me. I've become a Christian. And he's also told me I can't teach anymore. He's the boss, and so I'm done. And they actually, he was so well thought of. Remember, he's the guy leading Christians to Islam. And they were so afraid of people finding out, they actually just began to debate with him and talk to him, and they actually met with him for a whole week. And then finally they made him a a rather large cash sum offer and offered to move him to Saudi Arabia, which he said, um, let me tell you how that works. When you're so famous that they'll move you and give you money, what they're going to do is move you and give you money to shut you up, get you out of the country, and they're going to disappear you. There is no house in Saudi Arabia. There is no suitcase of money waiting on you at the end of the rainbow. And he says, you know, I've sent a few guys on that trip before, and even though we were told to tell people that, we were pretty sure that when they left and stopped answering their phone in a week later, it wasn't because they were rude. So anyway, he fled. He left his wife and uh, six children, but five children behind. And uh, we were just able to reunite them this last year. And he got to see his, uh, he had five children. The other one was in his wife's womb. And he got to see his daughter for the first time at five or six years old. And so anyway, so we've got them in a Christian school now. And they now live with us in Nairobi. What I, I, by telling you that story, what I want you to know is God is at work among the nation of Islam. Islam and Muslims are not my enemy. Islam and Muslims are the mission field. 
I don't care what you see on TV. I don't care what you hear people say. And I don't care what you think about what's going on there. I'm telling you, they are the mission field. More people are coming to Christ from Islam than any single people group in the entire world right now. And let me give you a little hint. Right here in Memphis, Tennessee, do you know we have something like 8,000 Somalis living on the other side of Binghampton over there? Did you know that? Do you know there's one known Christian among them? And some Presbyterian church has got him setting chairs out for services and taking them up, and they pay him, and they've taken him out of the Somali community, and he's doing nothing. He shows up and goes to church and sets chairs up. And I'm like, you got the one guy that can speak the language, and he's a Christian, and nobody's using this guy to get back in the community. And there's a whole organization here in town trying to figure out how to disciple that community and trying to decide how to reach that community. No one's even bothered to learn Somali yet. Now, they started that two years ago when I left. Nobody's learned Somali yet, and they've been, over, been working with them for two years. Guess how many people have come to the Lord? Zero. Uh, do you know that the largest unreached people group in the entire United States is trailer parks? Most people don't realize this, but 80% of everyone in a trailer park has never stepped inside a church. The 20% that have went to a funeral or a wedding. Now, you know there's some good Christians in trailer park, but they're like this many. Um, there are unreached people groups all around you. You don't have to come to Africa. For some of you, that may be good news. But you don't have to go to Africa. You don't have to go to India. You don't have to go to Australia. I hear there's missionaries actually in Hawaii. You may go there. You may like that. But um, right now in Memphis, Tennessee, and all this surrounding area, there are people that no one has ever told them about Jesus. And the one thing I wanted to do was tell you two things here as I close tonight. The first thing is we have been given a great commission, and the great commission is to go out and to make disciples, not converts, but disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is an obedient follower. How do we define disciple? I had a very intelligent theologian kind of guy that studied Greek. He said, actually, Glenn, all disciple means is student. It's a common Greek word. And I said, well, I know that's what your lexicon said. However, I'm talking about disciples of Jesus. He says, well, it's that would just be student of Jesus. I said, well, actually, Jesus gets to define, define what his disciples are. And Jesus says that if you love your mother, father, sister, brother, your own life, and any of your possessions more than him, you can't be one of his disciples. So he gets to define discipleship. He's the one that gets to do it. I don't care what your lexicon says. Jesus says it. We are called to call men and women to become disciples. Listen to what I'm going to tell you. If you're not a disciple, you're something Jesus never called men to be and never sent men to make. He never sent the apostles out to make anything but disciples. So what do you and I do? Now, most of us, we're not sure what this means. Most of us, well, I'm a Christian. I got saved when I was 16 years old. I prayed, and I'm telling you, I got the Holy Spirit, and the Lord's in my life, and I'm trying to serve him. That may or may not be enough to be qualified to be a disciple according to Jesus' definition. Only you would know that. But Jesus' standard is somebody 
that esteems him higher than all things else so much that at the end of that chapter, if you don't renounce all that you have, you know, to renounce something is to refuse your claim or rights on other things. Jesus says, unless you renounce all you have. In other words, I relinquish my claim on my money. I relinquish my claim on my relationships with people. I relinquish my claims and rights to my own life. I will come and follow you. We're not, if you're not a disciple, you cannot make a disciple. So I'm talking to you today and talking to you about going out and making disciples, but you can't do that unless you are a disciple. If you go out and try and make a disciple and you're not a disciple, you'll make something because we all reproduce after our own kind, don't we? But many of the problems that we have in the church today is because we've reproduced ourselves and the people doing the reproducing aren't disciples in the first place. So we wonder, oh, why do we have these problems in church? Why can't we get people to even come? Why can't we get them to do this? Why don't they do that? I don't know. We reproduce after our own kind. So what I want to do is just leave you with this. My mission, and I get questioned this in Africa all the time. They say, Glenn, what, what are you? Are you a pastor? Are you a missionary? Are you a bishop? You know, we love titles in Africa, man. Everybody's got to have a title. You practically got to blazon it across your shirt. Everybody's, half the country's, if you got a Bible and a suit and you're five, five minutes from home, you're at least a pastor. If you're 50 miles from home, you might even be a bishop. And if you're three or four hours away from home, well, we got a lot, we must have thousands of apostles just wandering. Uh, they're everywhere on television and everything else. But people are always trying to give me a title. What's your title? What are you? What are you? And I said, I'm a disciple. And as being a disciple, I'm required to make disciples. So I am a disciple maker. So what I do is I go out and get guys in the slums, and I go out and I get guys in Eastley, and we lead them to Jesus, and then we train them. Now, what does a disciple do? The Bible says in the Great Commission, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. So he's talking to the apostles, and I said, now when you go, you teach these guys to obey everything I've taught you. That's how you make a disciple. And so, uh, so what I do is I train these guys. Well, what's one of the things that uh, Jesus told the disciples to do? Well, it's the Great Commission. Let's turn it into a big circle. So one of the things Jesus commanded him to do was to make disciples. So once I make a disciple, if he's going to be a disciple, he's going to obey Jesus. So now he's got to make disciples. So what we do is, is we, we lead one guy to the Lord. We, uh, we lead him through repentance. We lead him through uh, baptism. We, we begin to teach him and make a disciple. And what we do after we make him a disciple, now that I've got him and made him a disciple, I hook in his arm and I begin to take him out. And then we go to someone else's house, and we do the same thing we did with him, and he watches me do it. And then we get another disciple, and we make them, and we get his friends and family members. And then once we made other disciples, then he begins to watch me disciple these guys. He watches me teach them. He watches me love them. He watches us go into the community where we identify widows and orphans that we can help, and we show him how to love others. You know, we don't read him a verse and close the Bible and say, go do it. What we do is we read him a verse, and we teach him about it, and then we say, come, let me show you how you take care of widows. Come, and let me show you where the orphans are. Let's go get some. 
come and let me show you how to go to the nation of Islam. And I'm going to show you to do it. And then once you've shown him to do it and you teach him to do it, then he gets so good at teaching part of it, he's, is he can actually teach it back to me. And I literally have him teach it back to me. And then what I do is I take him and I put him with one of the people who's led to the Lord. And I send them out. And then they begin to lead people. And then they begin to reproduce. And so what happens is, guys, I never had any formal missionary training. I didn't. I didn't go to theological college or university or anything. But I've got a guy that disciples me in Africa. His name's Mark Carrier. And uh, Mark showed me how to make disciples. So he discipled me. So he showed me how to make disciples. I went in the slums and got me some guys. I went to the Wameru and got me some guys. I went to Eastley and I got me some guys. I went to Luo tribe and got me some guys. I even got some Pakistanis somehow. Don't ask me. So I have like eight guys that I personally disciple. And my eight guys now all have like eight and ten guys of their own. And out of those guys, those guys have eight or ten guys of their own. So what's happening is we're multiplying. So, you know, it took me a year and a half to just figure out which way is the Indian Ocean, which way is north and south. But it's, it, it's really harder to start in disciple-making. It's very slow. But the neat thing about disciple-making is it's, multi, it's growth by multiplication. So what happened is, is that in the period of the now almost four years that I've been doing this, is that, you know, now we have 72 of these house churches. Uh, now we have, as I shared earlier, eight or nine people groups among Islam and, and six or seven people groups among African tribes. I don't speak Sudanese. I don't speak Ethiopian, Hamedic, Oromo, Arabic, any of these things. But guess what? I disciple the guy, and he does. So now I pretty much not speak Kiswahili now because it's, everybody in East Africa speaks. It's like a trade language. That way we can at least do business and talk to each other. But I don't speak all these heart languages. I'd love to be able to speak them all, but I can't. But even though I'm primarily an English speaker and Swahili speaker, is it because we use Jesus' model where we find the person of peace, the person that's open, the person that receives. We disciple him. Now, all of a sudden, here we are. We left Memphis, Tennessee four years ago, and now we have house churches with Sudanese, Ethiopians, Somalis, um, Pakistani, Luo, Wameru, Pukusu, Maasai. Maasai, I'm speaking that many in faith. We're working on it. I got one guy. Hopefully, I'll have house churches with them. But, you know, we're doing these things because these guys are the ones going to the nations now. And basically, I spend almost all my time now on my eight guys. Actually, they're doing all the work now. I just disciple them and support them and take care of them, and, uh, and that, that's kind of things that I do. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about tonight. Uh, I'm going to turn it back over uh, to Guy. What I would like to do as I'm turning it over is say this. I want to remind you of something. You can't make disciples unless you are one. Many of us got saved one day. Many of us got born again, baptized in the Holy Ghost. Many of us have had all kinds of wonderful experience. Chances are that many, many, many of us here today, no one has ever given us the call to become a disciple, so we couldn't have heeded it. And one of the things Jesus said, is that uh, when he gave that little speech four times in the New Testament, is he said, count the cost. Count the cost. And so what I would tell you tonight is I turn things over to Guy is, I want to tell you, and I want to give you an invitation to renounce all things but Christ and to become a disciple. You can't, 
I'm talking about how to make them, but you can't make one unless you are one. You can't make one unless you are one. And if you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, I'll say it one last time, you're something Jesus never called men to be and never sent the apostles out to make. Appreciate you, Guy. Thank you. I don't know if you guys recognize it, but uh, the model that he's put forth uh, is really what we endeavor to do here, just a more American version. We're starting with people who don't understand these things and have been Americanized and comfortable. So where he says he starts in a place, at least he's starting with people that are, that are already having to lose everything to come to Christ, and they're, they're more willing. So we're starting with a people not so much. You know, we like our comforts. We like, we, we've been taught the American way. We like to have stuff. We've, we were told that we were supposed to have stuff and that we were supposed to live a certain way and go out and make yours, and it was about you. But uh, if, if you haven't noticed, this church is trying to change that mindset to renounce the things of this world, to commit our lives and surrender our lives totally to Christ so that we can be disciples. And then that's why we're having these outreaches. That's why we have church-wide outreaches and we're going into uh, communities like O'Brien Park area and stuff so that we can learn to go. Now, we're, are we making, uh, having success? For where we started, I believe we are. Uh, and, but, but I want you to see that the things he's talking about is where we want to go. We want to be those people doing what Jesus asked us to do when he comes back. We don't want to say, well, God, you know, I spent my life about me. No, we want to say, God, I surrendered all. And we want to come back and say, even the demons, you know, listen to when we used your name, you know. We want to have the power. We want to walk in the authority that Christ did. We want to see the results that he did. And so it, the model might not be the exact same that a work here that works there, but it's the same principle. It's people giving up their lives to go make disciples. And like he said, uh, you know, everything produces after its own kind. So we're, 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 our mindset, our teaching is teaching us to be a disciple of Christ, somebody who is a committed, surrendered follower who loves Jesus more than they love the things of this world. And so that we can, we can begin to have a paradigm shift in our mind and understand what life is really all about. It's not about us, it's about others. And it's bl more blessed to give than to receive. So as, as we learn and that shift takes place and then as we, we, we get an opportunity to go into the uh, areas where we can minister and make a difference. And, and remember last time we went, remember all the testimonies. Man, we're getting stirred up. We're starting to get it. And we're going back again in October, so get ready. We're going back again. And so we're going to continue. For those of you who are willing to go, those of you who are willing to say, you know, I've tried life as the, you know, I've tried the American dream, and it just wasn't all that. Let's try the, the kingdom of God dream. Let's try God's vision for us in our life.
Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Hey!